0: Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burrus. Joining us today is Tim Sandifer. He's the vice president for litigation at the Goldwater Institute, where he oversees the institute's legal staff and also holds the Clarence J. and Catherine P. Duncan chair in constitutional government. He's the author of many books, ranging from constitutional law to regulation to a biography of Frederick Douglass. His latest is The Ascent of Jacob Bronowski: The Life and Ideas of a Popular Science Icon. Welcome back to the show, Tim.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: A book about a scientist is rather outside of your usual topics, so how did you come to write about Brnofsky?
1: Well, uh, it's actually a a long story because I I first discovered him when I was a freshman in college through the book version of his 1973 television series, The Ascent of Man, which I I read it and I was just enraptured by it. And so I started reading everything I could get my hands on by him. And then uh, I finally discovered a copy of the video of his documentary and watched that. And I enjoyed it so much that in my senior year of college, I decided that I should try and write a biography of him. Nobody had done so at that time. And so I thought I would take this on. And I had no idea, of course, even how to write a, a book at all, let alone how to write a biography, let alone to write the first biography of somebody, which is very difficult because you have to you know, you come up with a timeline to begin with. So since then, it's been 20 years, I've been kind of pecking away at it a little bit here and there as time goes on and getting more information, either through libraries or interviews. And finally, at long last, it's done.
0: Just you mentioned doing writing the first biography. And so just out of curious, like what goes into that? How do you Because I can ima- I can see like if you're writing a biography of someone who there's lots of people have lots of covered, you can just kind of grab a whole bunch of books, read them, and then maybe follow the notes to the original sources. But like what's right. the process of doing the first of its kind biography? Aaron Ross
1: Powell Well, the first thing is to find interviews and short articles about him just to try and come up with a rough timeline, and then to find what libraries in the world have collections of papers either of his own or of friend's through his lifetime. And so a lot of the research consisted of asking libraries around the world to make copies and send them to me of, of letters and other things in their collections, which fortunately in, this, in our modern world, we, we have lots of research institutions that are able to do that. I mean, I, it was amazing because I started this project before Google Books or YouTube existed. <laughs> and I discovered when, when those came about, I, it was amazing how, how much more quickly research could be done. I could find what books I needed to look up at the library. I could find video interviews and things like that, but I will say one thing that I have really learned from this project is to be skeptical of biographies. Interesting, having gone through this project to figure out to to see how much of biography writing consists of speculation, guesswork. Uh, you know, I did my best in some cl- cases to to uh, figure out what exactly was going on, but you know, it's guesswork, and it's a, it really was a revelation to me as far as reading biographies is concerned,
2: especially a biography of like someone from. Five hundred years ago, or a thousand years ago, yeah. much less someone who, who didn't die that long ago. So, what was it about the ascent of man, if that that was the first thing that grabbed you? And that, and that's what I knew Bernofsky. From, uh, my dad had that series on on VHS, and we watched it a few times. What was it about that that grabbed you?
1: Well, let me say, I think I think the ascent of man is is the greatest documentary ever produced. Um, certainly at the time that it was made. What happened was in 1973. Um, uh, David McCullough, who was in charge of the BBC's documentaries at the time, wanted to show off color television which, uh, in 1969, and so he produced a series called Civilization, which is a history of art. In 1973, um, they produced a follow-up. Uh, the ascent of man and it's a 13 hour series that is supposedly on the history of science but is really about so much more it's really burnowski's philosophical statement it's the summation of his entire career which was very broad he was a he's a real renaissance man Uh, A scientist, a philosopher, a poet, a playwright. And so he manages to put it all into this one great statement of his philosophy that he called uh, human specificity. And it's really the reason it's relevant, I think, to libertarians is because Bernofsky was trying to articulate a a philosophy for the post-World War II era that would be rooted in universal human principles of individual rights and peace that would would create a world in which people would be free to learn about the world and to live their lives in peace and safety free from the the horrors of world war II in which he was so so personally involved so the ascent of man the, aside from from being such a great film one of the most amazing things about it is how much of it is is uh, extemporaneous with uh civilization the first version the first series that came out in 1969 with Kenneth Clark that was entirely scripted. And, Bronowski, I mean, uh, Clark is reading the entire script off of cue cards. You can see his eyes go back and forth while he's talking. It's a fine series, but it's, that presentation, you, re- you can recognize you're being read to. It's very dull. Whereas Bernovsky, they pointed the camera at him and he could just talk. He was such a, a fantastic speaker that he, they could just point the camera at him. And, and it, for instance, the last episode is almost an entire hour-long monologue by him just speaking off the cuff. And it's, it's, it's riveting.
2: So Bernofsky was a libertarian?
1: No, definitely not. Bernofsky was I mean, let me back, let me let me retract that a little bit because I remember I when I interviewed his widow Rita, I said uh I said what was his political views and she said, "Oh, he was a socialist." And I said, "Really? I I I thought there was a lot that he said that that certainly was in common with libertarianism." And she said, "Oh, yes, he was a libertarian." <laughs> so so, uh, Brzezinski was one of these British socialists from the post-World War II era that, that you encounter a lot, people like George Orwell, for example, who although economically they believed in what you and I would probably call a, a massive welfare state and government regulation and oversight of major industry, he was not a Marxist in the sense that he very much rejected class – the analysis of, of class warfare – or historical inevitability, or those sorts of things which he regarded as basically mysticism. So he was uh, a version of socialist that actually has quite a lot in common with libertarianism in the sense that it's, it's supposed to be about individual freedom, liberating people to make the most of their personal gifts, which these Fabian socialists thought would come about by government wealth redistribution and rational centralized economic planning. And one of the the great achievements of Friedrich Hayek was to show that that was literally impossible to plan out an economy that way. Ironically enough, Brnofsky himself was in charge of a major planning effort because uh, shortly after World War II, the socialist government of Great Britain socialized the coal industry and for 10 years, Bernofsky was the chief scientist at the Central Research Establishment of the National Coal Board, and his job was to in basically create smokeless coal, uh, which was mandated by environmental laws, and then also to contribute to other kinds of planning in order to rationally plan the coal industry. It was, needless to say, a complete failure uh, for exactly the reasons that Friedrich Hayek had predicted.
0: I This connection between the individual rights and the universal statement of rights for man and science, can you speak more to that? Because a lot of the times when particularly scientists try to do philosophy or derive philosophical principles from scientific priors, it doesn't work out all that well. The the philosophers tend to have a field day picking it apart. So how how is he doing it?
1: Yeah and and I think philosophers did that to him too. I, the, a lot of the established intellectuals of Great Britain had scorn for Bernofsky, uh throughout his life and and would laugh at him behind his back and I think really unjustly so because I think a lot of his sci- his philosophical work is quite valid. Um Bernofsky was like uh, one of these figures like Karl Popper who saw a deep connection between uh, science and political freedom and individual rights. In the wake of World War II, Bernofsky started meeting with Julian Huxley, uh, who founded UNESCO, um, and he and Julian Huxley and a bunch of other British intellectuals were trying to plan out what came to be uh, a, um, a plan for a think tank. Think tanks were a relatively new idea at the time. And what they wanted to do was create a think tank that would not only do scientific work, but would fashion a philosophy and, and try and affect people's personal values and teach them a secular philosophy of individual rights, which they saw as as rooted in socialism, that would um, prevent another catastrophe on the scale of World War II. During World War II, Bernofsky had worked on helping to plan the um, – the, the area bombing of Germany and japan and and of course had had witnessed the devastation of the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki personally, and so he really. Thought that the world needed a philosophy that would prevent that kind of a catastrophe from happening And he thought that it was rooted in science And so in 1953, Bernofsky spoke at MIT He was a visiting professor there And he gave a series of lectures that was later published as his book Science and Human Values, one of his, one of his best books And in it, he, he first really articulated his philosophy of You know, and I might call it scientific humanism Which was the idea that the pursuit of science had embedded within it certain philosophical values, primarily the discovery of truth, the discovery of of, act, of of the reality behind appearances, and that to accomplish that we have to act in certain ways, so that the normative values of things like like honesty and dissent, freedom of speech, freedom of thought are sort of Im- embedded in the practice of science. Once we choose to discover the world as it is, we are necessarily re- mandated to behave in certain ways. Now, one of the things about that is that that eliminates the whole is-ought gap. It's long been thought that you can't derive values from uh, from the world as it is. And Brnovsky rejected that wholeheartedly, that to discover what is in the world, we ought to act in such a way that truth can be discovered was his the basis of his ethical beliefs. And that is a sort of existentialist approach that was not uncommon at the time. What I think is really interesting is how much that parallels arguments that were being put forward by people like, in the law, Lon Fuller, who made a very similar argument about law, that to in order to accomplish the work of a lawyer, you are required to act in certain ways that include honesty toward the court, you know, avoiding perjury, all these sorts of things that are embedded in that, which, um, by the way, Fuller himself acknowledged in his book, The Morality of Law. It's also similar to the writings of Hannah Arendt and, I would argue, even of Ayn Rand. Ayn Rand was trying to argue for a universal secular morality that, among other things, would have avoided a, a repeat of World War II, and she rooted it in this choice to live as a human being, she said, was the basic choice uh, that, from which all other morality flowed. Now, one of the big differences between Bernofsky and Rand is, other than the capitalism socialism <laughs> thing, obviously, uh, one of the big differences is that for Bernofsky, he never really explains why we should choose to pursue science, that what philosophers call the meta-ethical question. Bernofsky never really, really addresses that, so we don't really know how he would answer that question. He seemed to to think that the commitment to discover the world as it is was the foundation for a morality that would include Respect for individual freedom, uh, as particularly freedom of speech and dissent.
2: Well, I could see this going the other way, though. We could take. Someone who believes uh, that scientific truths you know, can be derived and then moral values uh, and, and purpose to some extent can be derived from that could turn that into a totalitarian type of regime where the, 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 there's a right way and there's a wrong way and science takes a large right. role in deciding the aims and goals and purposes of the state and maybe even of your life. But That's he...
1: right. And that was a criticism that was levied against Bernofsky quite strongly during his day. That was the argument that was being put forward by what you and I would call the conservatives of his of his time period. And that was a, a preoccupation that uh, of episode 10 of The Ascent of Man, which is generally considered his finest writing and his finest moment as a public intellectual. In episode 10 of The Ascent of Man, you really see Brnovsky's his the full spectrum of his gifts are brought to bear on just this question. It's supposed to be the period where he's talking about the period of science from about the 1930s to the end of World War II. He's talking about the the, um, the discovery of uh, of the the physics behind the atomic bomb. Now, Bernoussi's best friend was Leo Szilard, who invented the atomic bomb. He and Szilard were worked together at the Salk Institute in in uh, San Diego, California, and. Uh, and Bernovsky had been the head of the of the British mission that was sent to assess the effects of the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he tells this story, this horrific story, about arriving in Nagasaki in the evening with this his teammates. They drove in in jeeps and they were driving through this forest, and it was only when they heard the music coming from the battleships anchored in the harbor that they realized that what they thought was a forest was actually the twisted skeletons of the buildings that had been obliterated by the atomic bombs. And the the horror of seeing that kind of devastation changed Pranofsky's life forever. And so he... In this episode of The Ascent of Man, he's reflecting on that as well as telling the story of the discovery of the bomb. And the episode starts out with a blind woman feeling the face of this man and telling what she thinks he looks like. And she says, you know, she says he's he's definitely not English. He's His face is more round like a continental European, possibly eastern European. She says the, the wrinkles on his face, she says, he's are reg. Are wrinkles of agony, of misery. At first, I thought they were scars. And then Bernofsky starts off his narration and talks about how there is no one God's eye view of the universe, that science can reveal to us the truth about things depending on how we ask these questions, but there's no one single truth to be discovered and implemented in life. And he proves this by showing this man's face and what it looks like under different wavelengths of light, uh, under what, what it looks like under a microscope he and then he even blows up a giant paper mache copy of it and shows you what it looks on radar. <laughs> And this is to make the point that there is no single truth to be implemented in the world. He then goes on to tell the story not only of atomic physics and the discovery of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but of the, world, the, the advent of World War II and so forth and the bomb. And the climactic moment takes place at Auschwitz. And it was filmed there. Bernowski had never been to Auschwitz before. And he arrived at the camera crew and he told them there's no way that we can do this twice. We're going to have to do this in a single take because the, the emotion is so strong. So they said, okay, and they started set up the camera. And when you watch the final version, you can see that they had no idea what he was going to do. They, at one point, the cameraman has to quickly back up because Bernofsky moves in a way they didn't expect. And he gives this very eloquent speech about People say science will dehumanize people and turn them into numbers, and that's false. It's dogma and ignorance that does that. Science always has this embedded principle of intellectual humility, of of recognizing that we can't know the absolute truth about the universe, and that's what we need to be committed to. And I'm paraphrasing, but the actual speech— became something of a classic. In fact, it's quoted without attribution in an episode of The West Wing, uh, <laughs> where when the, uh, the, the dying former president leaves his advice to Martin Sheen, playing the president, uh, in the form of a letter. And when he reads it out loud, it's that speech from the Ascent of Man. So... <laughs> In any case, Bernofsky was very – was often accused of believing just that, that, that science could discover the truth and that would be implemented, wouldn't that be totalitarian? And his answer is no, that intellectual humility and respect for other people's freedom to choose is kind of based in science as he, as he understood it.
0: Aaron What about freedom to choose stuff that is anti-science?
2: Like vaccination,
0: well, that or or so it's it's one thing to say like we need epistemic humility to because we don't know ultimate truth and we're all trying to move towards it or epistemic humility and the the rights and kind of tolerance of other behavior that goes along with it is the way that we approach that truth but lots of things that lots of people do don't seem to be aimed at moving in the direction of ultimate truth or they seem to be based in outright rejection of even if we don't know ultimate truth, we know like a handful of like sub-ultimate truths and people aim in very different directions from those. How do you account in this particular view of toleration and humility and rights for justifying people going in the opposite direction that that science and Bernofsky thinks we should be going.
1: You know, he never really addressed that subject precisely that I know of, but I th- I I think his answer would have been people have that that right but then at the same time being a a believer in rational economic planning i think he would have nevertheless probably curtailed it in some ways uh, you mentioned vaccines for example i think he probably would have said that it's acceptable for the state to mandate vaccines and he would have said because it's the right it's simply the right correct answer (laughs) um and whatever, whatever concerns we might have about that, I think Bronowski recognized that, the, that that wouldn't really solve the problem anyway. Forcing people to be rational, obviously, is not going to accomplish anything. So he very much put his effort into the idea of educating the public. And this was a very big preoccupation of his career. In, 1940s, in 1946, he made his first broadcast on the radio um, in a presentation about the atomic bomb. And it was such a success that he became very quickly a, a public celebrity, spokesman for science on a television show, first a radio show, then a television show called Brains Trust. And he became such a celebrity in Great Britain as a spokesman for science that he even is mentioned in a Monty Python routine um, in The Exploding Penguin, when there, this penguin appears on top of the television and these the two ladies are talking back and forth. And one says, why is there a penguin on top of the telly? And the other says, how do I know I'm not Dr. Bloody Bronowski? <laughs> so uh, so he became a huge name in Great Britain. In the United States, unfortunately, The Ascent of Man premiered like a year after he had died. So right when he was on the cusp of becoming a, a major celebrity in the United States, he was already gone. So that didn't happen for him. But that would be, would I think have been his answer is that Forcing people to do it isn't going to accomplish anything. It has to be done through public education, and, the, and it's the responsibility of scientists in particular to go out there and teach the public not just the findings of science but the techniques of science and the, the rational secular mindset that underlies science and that the future of the human race depends on their ability to achieve that. He was especially concerned in the late 60s with the rise of the hippie movement, which he saw as a proto-fascist movement. Nosky thought that the hippies were basically along the same lines as the pre-Nazi movement that he had witnessed personally in Germany in the 1930s.
0: Can can you expand on that Fascist a bit because that's I mean uh, many of us have our problems with hippies, but that's not typically a – Yeah. A I, like critique. The, I like the phrase fascist hippies and we should
2: put that in the band name column too. That's like, <laughs> it's a good band name. <laughs>
1: that would be a great name for a band. But Brunovsky was very concerned about it for just that reason. He thought that the hippies were an anti-rational, anti-progress, pro-tribal, pro-primitivist movement, and that that was precisely what he had seen in the early wave of what became the the, the Nazi movement in Germany. Bernofsky, all his life, saw this sort of conflict, this perpetual conflict between, on one hand, the traditionalist perspective that was believed that man should not change the values that he had come to know through religion and tradition. And on the other hand, this belief in progress, scientific planning and discovery. And I I sort of suspect that he discovered this in his own family life. His father was an Orthodox Jew. His mother was an atheist member of the Communist Party. So I think that he saw that that clash, not only in, in history, but in his own personal life. But of course, he certainly saw it during the Spanish Civil War and then World War II. And then he saw it reviving again in the 1960s that the hippie movement was a reactionary movement against technology and progress and in favor of basically tribal primitivism and that it was only a short step from there to burning books and destroying the the scientific progress of man.
0: We've mentioned the atomic bomb a handful of times and how much of an impact that had on him. And you said that he was especially witnessing the destruction of it. He was horrified at the destruction. But what were his thoughts on the morality of dropping it in the first place? Because you can imagine a situation where you're you're horrified by the destruction of it, but still think maybe it was necessary.
1: He came over the course of his life to I think changed his mind on this shortly after the war. Broofsky was of the view that there was uh, that dropping the bomb was the correct thing to do, or rather let me let me back, back up and say he he thought planning and designing the bomb was the right thing to do and he was horrified, obviously, by the fact that it had been used, but that he, but he said in 1953, as part of the science and human value lectures at MIT, he said, science has nothing to be ashamed of, even in the ruins of Nagasaki, that the fault lay with those who insisted on causing the war in the defense of a philosophy that was anti-reason, anti-science, and anti-progress, and that they bore the blame for the devastation that followed. But... That was before he met Leo Szilard. Szilard is a fascinating figure. Szilard was a Hungarian scientist who um, was one of these you know, Renaissance men. Also, I mean, he was a he wrote books. Uh, he you know, in the humanities. He invented information theory as well as the atomic bomb. Um, and he, I think, influenced Bernoussi in that he told Bernofsky the true story that he had actually written the letter that. Einstein signed that was sent to FDR to start the Manhattan Project. And Szilard was of the view that the bomb should have been tested somewhere in the view of the Japanese government so that they could see what was going to happen and spare civilian lives. And by the end of his life, I think Bronowski had come to to be of that view, that that's what ought to have happened. Building the bomb was a necessity because the Germans, they thought, were on the cusp of creating the bomb of their own and that they could have you know, if not won the war, could certainly have done a lot more damage in the process. And so he thought that was right. But as far as using the bomb, by the end of his life, Brnofsky regarded it as a war crime.
2: Now, we've been – it's kind of funny. All the things that this guy did from television documentary to philosophy to doing the coal board, uh, what was his actual background? What was he actually trained in? He was a mathematician.
1: He w- went to Cambridge in the late 20s and he was trained as a geometer actually. Um multidimensional geometry was his particular skill. And this came to it to really bear, bear on science in 1950 when he was asked by a, a friend to try and help him prove that australopithecus africanus was a relative of human beings this was a, a skull that had been discovered that was is similar to lucy the the famous australopithecus afarensis and bernowski Found a way of doing this by coming up with a dimension, a multidimensional uh, shape of the measurement of the shape of the teeth in the skull that he was able to show was much more human-like than than gorilla-like, and that helped. Although scientists today believe that Australopithecus africanus is a human relative for just that reason, that technique, what's called multivariate ana- analysis, is still frequently used today. So that was his background. But at the same time that he was studying mathematics, he was also really into poetry. And he, be- he became best friends with some of the most famous and important poets of the 1930s in England, particularly William Empson, who's most famous for um, his book, The Seven Types of Ambiguity. And Bernosky and Empson co founded co-founded an undergraduate uh, poetry magazine at Cambridge together that po- published some of the young students' work. That these people went on to become very famous and important poets, including Kathleen Rain. And in, he became friends with people like T.S. Eliot. Bernofsky, on one occasion, was visiting Eliot in his office, and Eliot said to him, "Hey, you know, there's this new poet you ought to you ought to look up. This guy named W.H. Uh, Auden." And Bernofsky said, "Oh, I just finished pub- publishing a review of his book in a magazine," rather irritated Eliot.
2: <laughs> he, but also he disagreed very strongly with some of Eliot's sort of poetic philosophy.
1: Very much so. Eliot was a, a one of these reactionary traditionalist proto-fascist types uh that I was mentioning and so yeah Bernofsky had a, had strong differences with him and I suspect Bernofsky didn't know where where else to turn though so he became really interested in uh surrealism and dada and things like that it was very fashionable in that day
2: now with his sort of belief in science would he have been a big proponent, I guess having experienced or at least the aftermath of the Manhattan Project, would he have been a big proponent of having the state fund science, run science, take charge of scientific endeavors, and also what about things like the space program or science for science sake? Just, yeah. just per- pursuing discoveries, you know, no matter the cost.
1: This was a major preoccupation of the later years in, of Branowski's life, and in 1970, he presented a, a speech that became the most controversial thing he ever wrote called the disestablishment of science because this was during the Vietnam era, and you know Branowski had by that time become friends with Leo Szilard, and he was – He was very concerned about the moral responsibility of scientists for the destruction and havoc that was being caused by the scientifically designed weapons systems and things like that. And so he presented a paper that argued that scientists needed to separate themselves from government as much as possible, basically conscientious objector status for scientists in the Cold War. Now, there were quite a few who disagreed with this, mostly um, Teller was the most famous one who was uh, designing the hydrogen bomb. But Bernofsky respected the perspective of those who thought that they did owe a, a moral duty to work in scientific research on behalf of their governments. He just thought that it should there should be a, a way for scientists to opt out and refuse to work in war work. So his solution that he came up with was, well, all the governments should get together and take all the funding that they currently do for science and put it into a single pot, and the scientists will decide how to divide it up. It shouldn't be up to the governments to decide what research to do. It should be up to the scientists. This was an idea that I think he got from Leo Szilard who had proposed something similar a few years before. And... The problem is, this is crazy. Yes, see
2: some conflict of interest there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not only yeah, it it, it is, and in fact that's why um, the socialist member of parliament Anthony Wedgwood Ben accused Bronowski of of essentially calling for a dictatorship of the proletariat with this proposal, because it would inevitably have to be that the scientists would come up would 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 have to deal with the same kind of bureaucratic problems that government already has to do. You would have the same public choice problems. Buchanan and Tullock point out that. When the gov- whenever the government is in the power of redistributing wealth among demanding constituents, then they're going to experience lobbying and and these sorts of things which mean that the result will not necessarily be the most efficient. And so the same exact thing would have happened if Brnovsky's idea had ever been passed. Now, it was rejected at this conference that he spoke at that he was, he was sh- being booed and shouted at from the audience by these radical scientists because it wasn't left-wing enough. They were upset that Bernoussi wasn't calling for the overthrow of capitalism. So it's ironic that it was considered too conservative an idea at the time. Um, it was a hopeless effort on his part. On the other hand, you can kind of, you can certainly sympathize with it. Bernoussi really wanted to see some way of of getting the politics out of out of science, which you know by that time he had been working, he had already worked for a decade at the National Coal Board, and he'd been very frustrated by how politics had controlled his research there. He did finally invent um, methods of making coal with uh, – uh, usable coal but with less requirement for mining coal, which upset the coal miners' unions and was, n- was never implemented for political reasons. So he was very frustrated by political control over science. It's just he never found a solution for how do you deal with that. And, there, and the, of course libertarians would say there is no, there is no solution. As, if, as long as the government is in the power of redistributing wealth, it's inevitably going to, to have those bureaucratic strings attached.
0: This just makes me think of I think it was just in the last week or so there was a it's an op-ed in one of the newspapers from I think the CEO of Palantir was it about not like feeling like we can't you know if government asks us to do something for it who are we to decide we being technologists in this case but you could see it for scientists who are we to decide to say no to it if this is kind yeah. of the dem- democratically elected which tis strikes me as a terrible Position terrifying, too. terrifying, <laughs> but but it's, right. this is very much still a live issue.
1: And this dilemma was very much on Bernofsky's mind after the Klaus Fuchs uh, incident, when when Fuchs w- turned over atomic secrets to the Soviet Union and was and was caught doing it. It's and I and the way I put it in the book is there's this kind of dilemma. On one hand, Bernofsky thought that Leo Szilard had done the right thing to turn over atomic secrets to the Allied governments in World War II, but on the other hand, he thought that Fuchs had done the wrong thing. To turn that uh, information over to the Soviets and the explanation, I think that's a rational position, but Brnovsky really struggled with explaining it. His position has to be ultimately that democratic governments are morally more worthwhile than totalitarian governments, but Brnovsky had s- struggled with with exactly why the, that was. And I think he came to the view that, that totalitarian governments were simply incompatible with science. Because they didn't allow for freedom and dissent and things like that, but he he never quite articulated it as thoroughly as he could have, I think.
2: So the, the idea there being that that it's kind of reminds me of music, where if there's a sort of an art to science, if you if you read about being a composer under the Soviet regime, for example, mm-hmm. it definitely was a little bit control you know you want to think that music is about being free and expressing yourself but if you expressed yourself in a way that did not glorify the soviet empire you might end up in the gulag so it's, exactly. it's kind of like music is impossible uh, free music, uh, music from the heart is impossible in a totalitarian regime. Is that kind of what you think he was saying about like science in a totalitarian exactly. regime?
1: Exactly. In fact, his symbol of this was Trofim Lysenko, the, the infamous Soviet geneticist who was a quack and rejected the idea of genes um, who thought that you could transform winter wheat into summer wheat by exposing it to heat for example. Um, throwback to to the the pre-Mendelian view of genetics and of course, Stalin loved him, and so put him in charge of Soviet science. And he went about and saw to the the murdering of his scientific opponents, and uh, with with resulting disaster in the Soviet Union. Now, there's you know on this subject, there's a fantastic book I read not long ago called um, uh, From the Heavens, the Heavens and the Earth by Walter McDougall, which is a political history of the space race in the United States, and it makes a lot of these similar points that. The space race in the 60s was really the pattern of central planning that we've been living with ever since. It was the first implementation of the idea that progress was the responsibility of government planning rather than the free market. And it was, I mean, you had literal five-year plans. And the president of the United States stands up and says, I say that by by the time the decade is out, we should put a man on the moon. I mean, what is that if it's not a Soviet-style five-year plan? And I think that Kind of thing was really on the minds of a lot of people at times. Eisenhower famously warned about the military-industrial complex. That's what he was talking about, and that's what Bernofsky was concerned about. That science was being monopolized by government to the point where you could effectively do no research that was not in in within the demands of political authorities. But but and at the same to time, to large extent, we do have that.
0: But at the same time, it it worked, right? Like we. The, the five-year plan did. We did put a man on the moon. Yeah, that, that's what they want you to believe. Now. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: right. Yeah, that's right. And and again, Berinovsky, being a socialist, did believe in central planning. So I think there's this tension. He he wanted central planning to be democratic, so that it was dedicated to the pursuit of peace. Eisenhower's famous "Atoms for Peace" campaign that thought that we could use nuclear pa- power to to make the deserts bloom. Which indeed we could do if we had the the will to do so. Um, I think that was Bernavsky's desire, and he had a he had a real tough time with the tension between that and the political control that would inevitably follow from such an arrangement.
2: Now it seems like that you have this this documentary, this book, documentary, The Ascent of Man, and so Bernavsky was very interested in human progress and how it comes about. Did he did he view it as inevitable? I mean, in the sense of just putting people together under the right conditions, and they will ascend, so to speak, or was it was it something that had to be kind of nurtured and controlled and oh, fostered in? Oh, definitely the latter.
1: Yeah, definitely the latter. He he. In the the last episode, he says he's very concerned. He says I'm very concerned about this this loss of nerve in Western civilization and this retreat from science into mysticism and and the hippie movement and things like that. He says, and he says if we do that. Progress will continue, but it will continue in other places. It won't happen here. If we want western civilization as we know it to to have a place in the future then we have to cultivate the this philosophy of questioning and debating and skepticism and secularism and individual rights and these sorts of things um, which by the way is uh, is a, there's a another documentary called the day the universe changed that that came up after bernowski's death that makes this point uh, equally well this, this was a perspective that was very strong and you still find it among the scientific spe- uh, speakers today. I think you find that among Dawkins, for example, today. But um, but Bernofsky was very concerned that no, there, he says uh, it, in that last episode of The Santa Man, he says we have been given no guarantees that Egypt and Assyria and Rome were not also given.
2: Well, also, Carl Sagan, who wrote like, The Demon Haunted World, was very concerned about the rise of irrationality and anti-science movements, too. Which A
1: fantastic uh, <laughs> book. In fact, That I believe, if I remember right, Bronowski, uh, Bronowski's name is mentioned in the first sentence of that book.
2: Trevor Burrus Yeah, but, but that makes sense, though, because you know, we have scientists who write books about how important science is, which seems a little kind of self-serving. I mean right. <laughs> like, people, artists are like, you know, what would happen to you know, civilization if people aren't making art because like civilization depends on art and scientists say, oh, it depends on science and uh, go back and forth on these things. Trevor Burrus Well, uh, that's the uh, … Trevor
1: that The part of that that's relevant to libertarians is that – and Sagan makes this point in the demon-haunted world that it's not just scientific discoveries themselves. It's the, the mental … Thought processes of science, a scientific method, its skepticism, the ability to figure things out from cause to effect and things like that, part of that essentially depends on political freedom. So a, a, an artist I can see saying great art essentially depends on political freedom because, as you said earlier, if you have government bureaucratic control over art, then you're going to have – a dreadful uh, art that isn't even really doesn't even rise to the level of art. And you and I would agree with that. We would say not only art and science, but every human activity to reach its full greatness does depend essentially on political freedom.
0: Aaron But how far does that extend? So an artist, you can say, yeah, great art might depend on freedom and artists are going to use that freedom to create all sorts of art, some of it quite good, some of it quite bad, most in the middle somewhat mediocre, right? But a a terrible piece of art, the worst that it does is makes the artist look bad and offends a whole bunch of people or just you know, makes them wish they were somewhere else. Um, but a terrible piece of scientific research has the potential to do extraordinary widespread harm. What do you mean terrible
2: by, by the outcome? Like, so- the nuclear bomb was good science, right? But with terrible implications, right? As opposed to bad science, where something just doesn't work,
0: right? So I could see it. I could see it either way, you know. Like so you could, you could do the science poorly and screw up, and somehow make something that wasn't what you intended as incredibly dangerous, or you could be running off down a road, you know, very competently, but it's probably not a road you should be going down. You know, there's there's gradations, but but I guess the effect of the end result being negative is. In science, seems like it can be more catastrophically wrong than in really any other human endeavor except statecraft.
1: Well, I think the, I think the answer to that that Branovsky would give is probably the same that you and I give when it comes to freedom of speech, that the cure for, for bad speech is more speech. And so the cure for a, the, the scientific danger of things like, say, nuclear power is better science that can deal with that. But I think the spirit of your question is really, really touches on – the, this issue that that a lot of people were talking about in 1946, which is what about the science from the Nazi uh, warlords? What about the science they did or the experiments, Take the experiments Dr. Mengele performed on the, the inmates of the death camps? Bernofsky was always of the view that science really was incompatible with totalitarianism and, and Nazism and tyranny and things like that. But that seems like an overly optimistic view. George Orwell himself pointed out that you know the the, the Nazi regime had, really didn't have a shortage of scientists, and the Soviet Union found plenty of of competent scientists who were willing to to design war machines for Stalin. I think Bernoussi would have said no. He the, their work was was terrible. It, their, the quality of the work was bad, and Bernoussi very strongly believed that Mengele and other Uh, So-called scientists had actually performed no research of any value in the death camps and Bernofsky was in a better position to judge that than most people because in 1946 he was sent as a member of the T forces to Germany as part of the T forces were the the groups that were sent to find what scientific research and technology had been done by the Nazis and capture it and bring it back to the West. So he was of the view that no valuable science had been done by the, the Third Reich. Nevertheless, Orwell's point is true, which is that it's not the case that a totalitarian tyranny is going to collapse scientifically. And so it's not really comforting to say freedom is necessary for science, so a a society that destroys science is going to destroy – or destroys freedom is going to destroy science. That's not necessarily the case.
2: So all this discussion about his belief in – Individual rights and human possibility and the need for truth and but why why was he a socialist then do you think?
1: Well, because at that time, especially in say the in say nineteen thirty nineteen thirty one, let's say, at if you were around at that time, it looked to you, especially in Europe, it looked to you like there were only two paths for the human future, one, and that's fascism or communism. I mean, it, it really looked to a lot of people during that period like that was the choice. Either it was an anti-technology throwback to tradition and um, and culture on one hand, or it was a pro-technology planning for the, for the future of all mankind in favor of civilization, on the other hand. And that, that conflict between culture and civilization really seemed to a lot of people as the only two alternatives. The ideas uh, that w- we as libertarians are comfortable with, the ideas of Hayek and Mises had not yet even been articulated. And so the critiques of capitalism appeared to a lot of people as having been uh, valid, especially after the Great Depression. And so I think that he was of the view that something like that you and I would call a massive welfare state was the only path to freedom for people who had suffered under the remnants of feudalism. You know, that's another aspect of it is that Europe, Europe has always been a bit different ever since the French Revolution because of the legacy of feudalism in the United States it It was considered sufficient to let people do their own thing and be free and then that and then the state step back and and leave them alone in Europe. There was this idea that that's not enough because generations of tyranny through um through feudalism had to be eradicated by the state
0: this This brings up an issue I'd love to get your thoughts on, and something that I when I'm talking with young libertarians or my writing, bring up a lot is this engaging with thinkers who hold a set of beliefs that are very different from the ones that we cherish in like a, in a normative sense. So like here we have an example of someone who you – I mean you've written a book about him. You clearly think that we have a lot to learn from him and you think that we as libertarians have a lot to learn from him. But at the same time, he had this category of beliefs that run directly counter to a, a set of core values yeah. that we hold. And that's the case for a lot of – thinkers throughout history and and yep. one of the things i find when i'm talking with young people who are getting into this stuff is they'll they'll sometimes be too dismissive they'll be like well you know i have this guy you know like i have nothing to learn from plato because <laughs> plato <laughs> held this set of views and it's like well you know but maybe there still is something you can learn from right. him um so how do we how do we as we're approaching the history of ideas assess that question like how do we figure out where that line is and whether someone is someone like branovsky who you know you can kind of separate out for historical reasons the the bad and just look at the good from someone who you know probably there isn't much to learn from them because the kind of the the views are rotten to the core
1: yeah well you know it that's that's a good question in writing this book I wanted very much to be as faithful to Bernofsky's actual views as possible and not succumb to the temptation to make him sound the way I wanted him to sound. Uh, You know, there are these books out there, for example, H.L. Mencken's book on Friedrich Nietzsche, which kind of try and portray the subject as the writer wants him to be rather than the way the subject really is. And I wanted to avoid that. But I also wanted to engage Bernofsky's ideas and challenge them where I thought they were weak. And so I've done my best to try and say, here's what he thought. Here are some of the weaknesses of that. Here's what critics said. Here's what I think the critics were right or Wrong about that sort of thing so his disestablishment of science essay for example, I, you know I try to show why he thought this and and why what he did was rooted in something I think that's good but that it in the in the end the critics were right that it really didn't work that way and anybody else who approaches this is going this subject matter is going to necessarily have a different view of these things than I do and Bernofsky himself would have enjoyed that he was very much of the view that a person's personal views of things were rooted in, the, I mean, how a person reports something is going to be rooted in their own value structure and that there's nothing wrong with that, including science. Uh, so he would have been okay with that, I think. But it's it can be a challenge sometimes when you're talking about a figure who is so like like Plato or or maybe a communist figure, who's so... Associated with bad things, is there anything to learn from them? Of course, there's something to learn from them if 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 at least just what it is that's bad about them is a valuable lesson the that's the great thing about freedom of speech is that. With freedom of speech, we are able to see evil ideas and therefore understand why they're evil and arm ourselves against evil in the future. John Milton in Areopagitica, the most beautiful thing ever written in defense of freedom of speech, makes just this argument. He says, I cannot praise a fugitive and cloistered virtue that sinks from the race and for truth, which is not to be obtained without dust and heat. In other words, that you you can't really call a person a virtuous or intelligent person if that person is only pure because they've refused to encounter evil. On the other hand, a person who does read and study what is bad and comes to understand what's bad and puts that lesson into practice in his or her life, that person is the truly virtuous person.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, you can find our Free Thoughts discussion group on Facebook or on Reddit at r slash Free Thoughts Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. As always, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.